Amen. You may be seated. Concern with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. It's right near the back of your Old Testament, right, right before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. We're just looking at chapter 3 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I know I'm probably speaking to the choir in terms of your experiences raising children and, and um, right around the age of one deciding to feed them, maybe for the first time, spaghetti. Right? You, you, you give them that, that amazing meal and you probably have to prepare maybe even by removing some of their articles of clothing because you know how much of a mess it's going to be. Right? At the time Thatcher was done eating his first spaghetti meal, he had sauce all over him from head to, to, to foot. He, he had pieces of noodle stuck in his ear, on his face, on his neck, inside the crevices of his arms, his belly, his, his toes. I mean, it, it literally covered him completely. And I, and I had the thought, I, I remember sharing this with some kids during, in a, when, during my internship at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. We had the, the scariest task of our internship was giving the children's message um, in the evening service. So literally like two minutes, and they were very strict on that two minutes. So um, usually I'd try to come up with some illustration, and this was the illustration that I, that I used then. But that, um, that, that could you imagine giving, giving Thatcher, while he's covered in all of this spaghetti sauce and, and, and noodles, could you imagine just giving him a napkin and saying, clean yourself up? What would he do with that? Uh, not, not much. In fact, he'd probably make it worse, right? He'd, he'd scrub it even deeper and wider and spread it beyond what it had already, where it had already gone. And the idea in this passage that we see is, is that we're all like that. We're all covered, not in spaghetti, but sin. Every part of us has been tainted by sin. Every aspect, our will, our affections, our, our desires, our uh, mind, right? our, um, our actions, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, it's, it's tainted by a fallen nature, that we are sinful from conception. Sin covers every part of us. There's not a single part of us that's neutral. And so what we, what we learn uh, from, from this idea, from this passage, really is, is the only solution, the only answer to our dilemma. And it's that in order to be saved, God must remove your sin and clothe you in an alien righteousness. That's the idea of substitution. We're going to talk about that from Zechariah 3. This idea of substitution is really the heart of the gospel. Our need for our sin to be removed and to be clothed in an alien righteousness or a righteousness that does not come from ourselves but is granted or imputed to us. It's the idea of substitutionary atonement. Really from Zechariah 3, we could call this the gospel according to Zechariah. It's a, it's a clear picture of the gospel for us. It's 
possibly my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. I, I love the illustration, you know, along with, as Ben mentioned this morning, Genesis 15. I love the illustration that that is of God's covenant faithfulness to us. But here in Zechariah 3, we get a picture of the gospel very clearly. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon it, and we'll read it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this illustration, this picture of what you have done for us in Christ. That as we stand before you in our own filthy garments, you remove that filth and you cleanse us, you clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is because of what he has done that we can come before you, that we can pray to you as children to a father, that you've adopted us into your family. And so we're filled with gratitude for that. And we long to grow and mature in godliness. Right? And it, in order for that to happen, we, we must understand how it began. We must understand this work that you've begun in Christ and the work that you will bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ when he returns. So, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We ask that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear its truth. Soften our hearts to believe it and to respond in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head, so that they put a clean, so they put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its encryption, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, what we find in the Old Testament repeatedly is, is, is these examples of prophets, priests, and kings, right? And we know that, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, that all of them in some way point forward to Christ. Our, our catechisms, in fact, teach us that Christ, uh, 
does the work of redemption in his offices as prophet, priest, and king. And so he's a prophet who replaces our ignorance. He shows us the will of God for our salvation. He's a priest who can remove our iniquity. That's what we see very clearly here in this passage. He's someone who cleanses us of our sin and gives us his righteousness. And he's a king who conquers our rebellion, our insurrection against God. And so the purpose in all of it is to reconcile us to God, our maker, a holy God. How can we be reconciled to him? Only through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in his work as prophet, priest, and king. Evangelicalism's, um, one of its critical problems is that oftentimes the gospel or the work of Christ can be assumed Right, or is expressed in, in a very repetitive and formulaic way. Sort of like you just have to say it just like this. You know, pray this prayer after me in these words, and this is how you're saved. Or, or it's assumed that someone knows, and so, so we, we, we move beyond the gospel. We begin to talk about um, other aspects of the faith. But we can never do that. Right? We can never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is critical and crucial and informs everything we do. Well, so you have that that tendency on the one hand to assume it. On the other hand, and I think we pointed ourselves here, we can oftentimes pack a whole lot of other things into the gospel. To assume that really, if you want to understand the true gospel, you must understand it with all of these additional doctrines that, that surround it. Right? Until you understand all of those components, you don't really understand the gospel. And so we set up this sort of doctrinal litmus test to see how much people really understand. And we begin to put little scare quotes around people like, oh, th that professing Christian over there does this or that. And we assume the worst about people just because they may disagree with some minor uh, aspect of doctrine. Now, I don't want to suggest that uh, that doctrine is unimportant. I went to seminary because I wanted to be properly trained in Christian doctrine, being able to understand it and articulate it. But frankly, the gospel is just not as complicated as we oftentimes make it out to be. Right? It should be simple enough for a child to understand. And even as we've heard some of these children recite these things, they're, they're using words in some cases that they probably don't know how to properly define. Right? And that, but that's okay. They don't, they don't need to know every element, every aspect. They need to understand the basic con contours of the gospel. Right? The basic idea that they are sinful and that Christ is their, their only hope, their only Savior. Right? And so, yes, we can, we can never plumb the depths of doctrine. We should constantly be studying and refining our understanding of his word, but we, can, we should not be packing all of that into our presentation or our expectations that all people will come to agree uh, with those doctrines, or that if they don't agree with us fully, that they're somehow not saved. Uh, so I hope that as we consider this passage this morning, that, that you're, you'll leave with your heads raised heavenward, recognizing the awesome wonder that God would save a wretch like me, a, a simple recognition of God's amazing grace. Uh, in order to understand that, it's, it's helpful to also consider the role of the priest. Last week, we looked at Hosea and understood kind of the role of the prophets is God's represent, representative or representation before the people. And so he takes his words, his language, and he, 
and he expresses it to the people. He's God's mouthpiece, if you will. Well, as a priest, it's sort of the reverse. Right? The priest stands before God representing the people. He brings before God uh, the needs of the people. And so you have this in Leviticus, this description in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 32 through 34. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that's the, the, the day of atonement that's being described there. We see multiple other examples of, of the priest's duties in, in giving their sacrificial offerings on behalf of their own sin, on behalf of the sin of the people, representing that sin to God in a sacrifice and, and, then, and then substituting that sin in this animal, right? In, 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 in what an animal, um, and an animal represents sort of taking upon themselves that sin and then, and then it's put to death. Its blood is shed. Now, of course, there's problems with that in terms of its longevity, the possibility of what, what, the, what a priest, the priesthood could do prior to Christ. What they were able to accomplish uh, was insufficient, was inadequate. We see again also in, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, so, so this, the primary function of the priest was to oversee this sacrificial system which teaches us God's concern for sin, that he takes sin very seriously. Sin deserves death. The sacrificial system also teaches us that substitution is possible. And it teaches us the goal of the sacrificial system, which is reconciliation or fellowship. That fellowship is possible with God. The problems, though, are that priests died. Right? Priests couldn't live forever, and, uh, and, and they also sinned. And so they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin prior to offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people. The other problem is that humans are worth more than animals. So animal blood was never sufficient to cover entirely right, the, the sin of mankind before God. It required repeated offerings required this continual going before God on behalf of the sins of the people. So those are the, the problems of the priesthood. Well, in, in Zechariah, you have Hosea, uh, sorry, last week we looked at Hosea, who was this pre-exilic prophet. Prior to sending the people into exile, Hosea comes on the scene, and he warns of the judgment that would take place because of their unfaithfulness. But he also promised a future reconciliation. It was this beautiful picture, really unexplainable. And it just transitions from, from a passage of rebuke for Israel's sinfulness, their waywardness, comparing, the, comparing it to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, but then it transitions to this promise, right? this promise that uh, there would be a future reconciliation. And Israel, it, it first of all represents this reunion of Israel and Judah coming back under one head, which had partial fulfillment in post-exilic period 
under Zerubbabel. So that then brings us to Zechariah. He's a post-exilic prophet, and he, his ministry began over 200 years after Hosea's ministry. And it, and it represents this, uh, it begins with, or really is, uh, portrays eight different visions. Uh, we're just looking at the fourth vision here in chapter 3. The first vision says that God tells us that God is in control and that he promises protection to those who return to him. Okay, so God is in control, he's sovereign, and he promises protection to those in exile who would return to him. The third vision is God's love and his commitment to his people who have returned to him. And then we come to this fourth vision, which is how a sinful people can find acceptance before a holy God. Just because they've returned doesn't mean that they've made themselves right with God. They've been blessed by this return, and in in many ways they're they're disappointed when they come back because they still are dealing with sin. They're still dealing with temptations and trials. They still have enemies that they have to face. And so the question that's on their minds is the purity of the returned exiles. It's a major concern for Israel's leaders. God calls Haggai to to oversee the rebuilding of the temple at this time, and he calls Zechariah to call his people to repentance and to covenant renewal. And so that's what Zechariah is doing. Again, the original hearers, they they felt a sense of of letdown as they've returned to the land. There's, There's some unmet expectations in themselves and in others in the land. And in many cases, some of them have ignored their own sin and they've grown haughty. They've grown proud in that ignorance. They've sort of become indifferent toward their sin. Others have become paralyzed in shame and condemnation. It's really nothing radically different than what we experience, isn't it? We all wax and wane between indifference in our sin and then this helpless despair as if we're we have no hope we're going to continue to do the same things we've always done and so this passage gives us hope it gives us encouragement the first thing we see here is joshua's condition if you're following along in the outline and i know we we've, we've taken a long time to set this up we'll move faster through this but We do have four points to make here. The first is Joshua's condition in verses 1 through 3. He says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and and Satan standing in his right hand or at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, this is a a courtroom scene that's being set before us. The angel of the Lord is the judge at the front of the court. Joshua is the high priest, and he's standing as a defendant. He's on trial, right? And and what is he? Again, he's as the high priest, he's representing the people of Israel in this courtroom. And then you have Satan, the prosecutor, at his right hand. He is bringing... A judgment against him. He's pointing out the things that Satan loves to point out. He's accusing him of all the filth that he sees. Okay, so that's the courtroom scene, and, and the angel of the Lord responds that this is a, bl- a brand 
plucked from the fire. In other words, this is, this is someone, the fire represents that judgment in exile. And he's been plucked out of that judgment. He's been delivered from exile. He's been preserved, and yet now, in the land, he's still covered in filth. You remember last week when we talked about the prophets and, and how God called them to some pretty strange things, and we said that Ezekiel, in chapter 4, was called to bake bread upon human excrement. That word, it's the same root that you find here for filth. It's a, you can find that word elsewhere speaking of vomit. So this is the picture that you have of Joshua the high priest. He's standing in the courtroom of, of the heavens, the heavenly places, right? He's standing here covered in excrement and vomit and every vile thing you could imagine. It's, it's a stench that is filling the courtroom, and it represents his defilement by sin. They're nothing like the holy garments that we read about in Leviticus, right? The, the garments that are described in Exodus 28 that a priest is supposed to wear. They're, they're called holy. They represent God's glory and beauty. Uh, in Exodus 28, verse 2. In Exodus 28, 36, it speaks of a turban that, bear, that is worn by the priest that, to bear the guilt of the holy things consecrated and offered to the Lord. So these garments are pure, they're clean. The garments, they, they provide this special access for the priest to God. No one else was to wear those garments, and the priest was required to wear them in order to perform the duties that were given to him. And it says if, that the garments were required lest they bear guilt and die. Exodus 28, 43. So it was no light thing. Right, for them to come before God properly attired in the proper garments. Well, that means that Joshua now, standing before God, is unacceptable. The, the just thing would be for him to die, for him to be put to death. That, that is what Satan is accusing him of. This isn't what you commanded, God. He's filthy. Look at him. He's disqualified. You can't use him. And therefore, all of the people that he represents should also be recognized as guilty and disqualified and put to death. So what about us? Our problem is, is not a specific sin. God does not withhold his peace from us because we are involved in a particular kind of sin Sin has affected everything, and it's affected everyone. We are wholly inadequate to stand before God because every part of us has been tainted by sin. And so your problem is not that you are committing a sin, but that you are a sinner. Your problem is not that you've looked at someone with lust or that you stole a piece of candy in the supermarket when you were a child. Or that you at one time told a little white lie. Right? All of those are small examples that daily you fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, you have a guilty conscience. Whether or not you believe there is a God. 
you deal with this guilty conscience because of your sin. And so our only response, there's, there's two responses, really. We can either seek forgiveness from sin, or we can grow numb in sin. And we can continue to com- commit that sin and just grow numb to it, as, as described in Romans 1. Satan's accusation is actually true, and Joshua knows it. But rather than condemnation, what happens? The result is a cleansing that we see in verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head, so that they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Pure, clean garments. It represents God's forgiveness. It represents his righteousness, his glory, as we talked about in Ezekiel 28, the garments and what they represented for the priesthood. God is, is giving him, he's restoring to him the purity that he intends them to have. So the removal of sin is not enough. We must also have the righteous deeds of Christ attributed to us. That's what's represented by the, the clean, pure vestments that are, that are now clothing Joshua. But it's, it's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And notice in this passage what Joshua does. What's his role here? Does, he doesn't even remove his own garments. It's like he, he can't do it himself. Someone else has to come and remove the robe. Someone else has to come and clothe him with, some, with pure, pure linens, pure garments. Someone else has to put the clean turban on his head. Someone else has to do that work for him. He is helpless. He's like a toddler covered in spaghetti with a napkin. He's helpless to cleanse himself, to make himself right. All he does in this passage is stand there. And what happens to the accuser? Where's his voice? He's silenced. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are called according to his purposes. And so very simply, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the the proper response to this passage, to this text, is to receive forgiveness. To let your filthy conscience be cleansed by placing your hope in Christ alone. Turning to him. Acknowledging your sin. And asking him to take it. To remove it from you. As far as the east is to the west. That's your hope. If you're a believer, your response to this text is to rest in what you've received from Christ. To acknowledge it as a gift from him that you didn't deserve as you stood before him in filthy rags, not just in your own sin, but even in your attempts to be righteous. All of it has been taken away, removed, and replaced with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Receive that and rest in it. 
But the passage doesn't end there. Let's see what, what else we learn about our salvation from this. In verses 6 and 7, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This, tra- this charge of responsibility follows the cleansing. That's important to see. That's important to recognize. The removal of Joshua's filthy garments is followed by a charge given to Joshua. That's the order in which we have to see this. Because Joshua had already been accepted. He had already been justified before God. Satan, the accuser, has already been silenced. And because of that, now he can hear the charge in a new light. In other words, because he's been justified, he now can pursue sanctification. He can pursue the righteousness that God has called him to. John Calvin gives an illustration of this in his use of the Ten Commandments in liturgy, and we we do the same thing here in our order of service. We have the Ten Commandments at the end. There's three uses of the law, and The first is that it it curbs disobedience. It encourages, in other words, uh, to citizens, uh, for citizens to practice civil obedience, right? The law encourages that. That's the first use of the law. The second use would be as a a mirror or as a sort of a, a it's a mirror to show us our sinfulness, okay? So most of the liturgies, the Reformed liturgies, place the Ten Commandments in conjunction with our confession of sin. And it does a a wonderful job of doing that. As we read it, we recognize how far short we have fallen of the glory of God, and we can confess that sin to him. But, But Calvin, in Geneva, he placed it in accordance with the third use of the law, as a guide, as a map for the believer, as something to encourage us to walk in obedience. Now that we have been justified, We are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience to him for his glory, with gratitude for what he has done. Right. So the third use of the law should be cherished. It's because our inheritance has been guaranteed by Christ, because we've already been clothed positionally with that righteousness that we've received, imputed to us. There is a sense in which we are already seated in the heavenlies, with Christ, and yet we continue to strive for that holiness, right? We continue to to walk in obedience, to to rely upon his spirit to guide us. This is that progressive sanctification, that we no longer want to live in that sin, that filth that defined us. So again, it's important that Joshua's charge comes after his cleansing, But it doesn't end there. Again, in verses 8 through 10, we see this picture of Christ's completion. So you have Joshua's condition, Joshua's cleansing, Joshua's charge, and Christ's completion. This this can get a little confusing and technical, and so I'm just going to briefly summarize this last section, but and, and look at each symbol individually, but let me, let me read verses 8 through, through 10. 
Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is is filled with symbolic imagery at the end here. Verse 8, Joshua and his friends are acknowledged. This is a a company of priests. This company of priests are called to be, they're, they're, they're called a sign. They're a sign of this servant branch. In other words, they're, they're a sign of the Messiah. The servant could be none other than the servant that's spoken of in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 11. You can read about that uh, another time. But, but this is the, the suffering servant. This is the servant who brings redemption through suffering. Another aspect that we learned in, in Sunday school this morning. So our iniquities were laid upon this suffering servant. He stands in our filth, in other words. He takes our sin. He takes all of our righteous deeds, which are tainted by impure motivations, these righteous deeds that are filthy rags. He takes all of that upon himself, and he puts it to death on the cross. And he's a branch. He's the Davidic king you you read about in Jeremiah chapter 23 and Isaiah chapter 4 and 11. So these priests are symbols of this servant branch. In other words, a a priest king. They symbolize the work of this servant king. And so Christ is our true and lasting representative who stands before the Father in our filthy garments, and he defeats sin by paying the penalty of death. He's the true priest who didn't sacrifice animals, but sacrificed himself whose blood alone could truly bring the atonement that we need was more than adequate to cover every sin that you will, that you have and will ever commit. So the significance then of of the stone and the single day that's represented in verses 9 and 10 and the vine and fig tree closes out also with this same same imagery, the same symbolism, right? The stone is probably the hardest one to understand. And so I'll simply say that I think it's, it, it represents God's perfect eyes. There's seven eyes on the stone. It's watching over this building project. Some have said it may be the cornerstone of the temple. Uh, either way, it's, it's something that's clearly pointing forward to Christ, and it's representing God's watchful eye over the project, over this building project that the people are undergoing. Then we read that this is uh, that the iniquity would be removed in a single day, and maybe for many of us, we're thinking that's that's easy to understand on this side of the cross. We know what that's talking about, how the iniquity was removed in a single day. But but think about this from the perspective of the original readers. Day after day after day, they have this endless procession of sacrifices constantly bringing before the priests their animals and putting to death that animal 
as a representation of their sin, offering this temporary covering. It was constant. There's something like eight different sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament that these priests were daily offering throughout the year. This, this would not have been anything but shocking to the original audience. In a single day, you'll remove the iniquity of the land? How could that be? Right, Jesus Christ would accomplish in a single day what a countless number of animal sacrifices could never achieve. And then the last image is this vine and fig tree, which represents peace and prosperity. And what is happening here? Well, prior to this day, vines and fig trees were to be protected from enemies. In the book of Judges, you see this, right? The people would come in and they would remove, they would, they would remove all of the fruit, all of the produce from the fields. So they had to be protected from enemies. But what we find here is this promise that it that, it, that there would come a day where they would begin to experience peace, where they could share a meal under the vine and fig tree that God has provided. And so all of these symbols point forward to Christ and the blessings of our redemption in him. They flow out of the work done to preserve uh, Joshua's life and ministry. And so in order to be saved, God must remove your sin and clothe you in an alien righteousness. That's the prescription for every one of us. No matter how good you think you are, it's the same prescription. You may not even notice your stench. Or you may be so overwhelmed by the odor that you're ashamed to do anything. You simply sit in that condemnation and guilt. Either response does not make you right with God. Your, your need remains. You stand before a, a holy God in filthy garments. Your role is simply to rest and receive the work of Jesus Christ done on your behalf. He must remove those garments and give you the pure, clean vestments without which none of us will see his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this illustration, this picture of a, of a heavenly courtroom, a heavenly scene, and Joshua the high priest representing us and our need, and Satan the accuser wringing that guilt and condemnation and, and and shaming us. Lord, we can, we can hear that even today, those accusations, and yet we know that you have silenced them. That in, in Christ, through his redemptive work on the cross, you have put an end to the accusations. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as we are placing our faith and our hope in Christ alone, we we stand before you confident, clothed in his righteousness. We can come and partake of the Lord's Supper with joy and gratitude. We come recognizing our sin and we confess that sin freely to you, but we come recognizing that you have restored us in your Son.
So Lord, as we respond to this in song and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may you restore to us the joy of our salvation and remind us of the wonderful gift that we have been given, the redemptive work of Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Lamb, Precious Lamb, hymn number 353.